Yeah, that was really good, Jensen. I don't even know how to say most of those names, so that's why I had you do it. That was really good. So this is it. Last salt of the year. Is that sad for some of you? No. Okay, then. It's been that kind of year. Yeesh. Um, I think we tend to want to numb ourselves when we walk through life. I think we are convinced that we just need to push through the next day and the next moment, and we often don't take time to recognize exactly what God is up to or what's happening in our lives. And so I want all of you to, you can take a physical deep breath, but even just a mental one. Take a deep breath right now. For a lot of you, um, sitting in this room, being changed and challenged by the word of God was not even on your radar when you were thinking about coming to this campus. And yet here you are, your heart has been captured and transformed, and now you belong in the kingdom of God. He wants you to recognize that. Many of you, this is your last night in this room, right? As a student, God wants to say something to you tonight. And then there are those of you who, uh, this is just your last night in general, you're transferring, you're going somewhere, something's happening in your life, or you're gonna be back here next year, but you've got a summer ahead of you that's maybe unknown or very known and yet still filled with questions. God wants to say something to us tonight. We have to continue to push against the world's desire to numb us and to live into the kingdom's desire to keep us awake. And tonight, God wants to say something to each of us. He wants us to be awake long enough to hear from him. And we've spent this whole year sinking ourselves into this letter from Paul to the Corinthian church, a church that he spent a lot of time with, started himself, and loved deeply. He had a lot to say. They were not really that well off. Lots of problems were existing in the church. And so he had to pen this letter reminding them who they were. And I've told some of you this story, but I heard it recently. There's this village in Africa. It's incredible. Um, when a mother and a father learn that they're pregnant, what they begin to do is they begin to write a song for their baby. But that song is going to become the baby's name. And so as the baby's growing in the womb, the mom and the dad, they keep writing this song filled with hopes and dreams, desires of who they want their child to be. And as they grow, they add to the song, they sing it over them while the baby's in the womb. And then finally on the day when the baby begins to arrive, the mom and the dad, they go into the birthing tent. The village then gathers around the birthing tent. And while the mother is having the baby, the village sings the baby's name, sings the song of this baby over them. And as the baby grows up in the village, begins to live, and typically what happens to all kids is they begin to disobey. Often, if it gets bad enough, they'll take the baby or the child, they'll put them in the middle of the village, and the whole village will sing them their name and remind them, this is who you really are. And 1 Corinthians is Paul's song to this church that he deeply loved, trying to remind them, no, this is who you really are. It's why he started the letter telling them how much he loved them, how much hope he had for them, and how deeply he believed in them. And yet he still had some things he needed to say that were not going to be easy to hear. But Paul needed them to realize that their new identity, when they become a believer, when they begin to follow Jesus, it has to change everything. You don't have an option when you begin to follow Jesus to just give him some parts of who you are. He demands everything because he's worth all of it. And Jesus wants us to recognize that when that begins to change how we live in the world around us, it should also then allow us to see that we have a whole new reality in front of us. And the Corinthian church was compromising that new reality for their old one. 
They were looking at the world around them, if you remember Stephen's analogy, but putting the contact lens of the world into how they lived their Christian life. And Paul was trying to tell them, oh, no, 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 it's the other way around. You put the gospel lens on, and then it changes everything you see in front of you. It's a brand new reality. And this new reality, it's not just the right way to be Christian, it's the truest way to be human. See, we've got to begin to be people who preach that. When you share the gospel, when you begin to tell people about Jesus, you don't tell them, this is how you become a Christian. No, I found the way to be human because I found a way to be free from my sin or have the power to fight it. The gospel is not something Jesus did, but a kingdom he inaugurated. And Jesus became a king with a crown of thorns on a cross, and then his empty tomb unleashed his reign on the world around us. And so when you think of the gospel, don't think that's just something Jesus did. No, it's a kingdom he brought to earth and then invited me into and then tells me, I've given this to you. Now go and give it to every single person you know around you by the life you live, the words you speak, and the the person that you become. The gospel was never supposed to be something you just believed in your mind. It's supposed to become, like I said, the lens through which you live out all of your life. The Corinthians, as we walked through this letter, realized that that needed to change the way that they speak to one another, the way that church looked and how they gathered. Their sexuality had to change, how they loved one another, how they weren't loving each other, and then where they found their hope. All of it was affected by what Jesus Christ did and the good news that he lived and brought to us. And two things, I'm feeling it tonight, so we're going to have some fun, okay? I'm just telling you right now, Josiah prayed for me, so I know it's going to happen. Two things I want you to realize before we go any further about this whole letter. First thing is Paul's tone. From beginning to end, Paul never loses the love he has for these people. You have to realize Paul never loses the love he has for these people, but that does not blunt the knife of conviction that he thrusts at the sin that they have in their lives. He is still a good doctor. He tells them, I'll do everything I can to fix you, but that means I'll have to cut you with the scalpel to get what's in there out. Paul loves them. He ends this letter the same way he started it. He says, my love be with you all. And really that's all chapter one was, is let me tell you how much I love you and who you really are in Christ. Remind you of your identity. But it did not sting the truth of what he had to correct them with. And what you need to realize is real love, if people are really gonna love you, then they're never gonna tolerate sin or sketchiness in your life. The people who actually love you will go after the things in your life that don't seem to add up when it comes to following Jesus. That's real love. Not in superiority, not in judgment, but love. It's not loving to let people stay in their sin. It's either cowardice or selfishness. The most loving thing you can do is say to someone, that thing you just told me about your life or that thing I see, I'm not comfortable with it. And if you get offended when people do that, it's probably because you want your sin more than you want your savior. And you need to recognize that you have to become a person if you follow Jesus who invites others in to say, that thing in your life, it needs to change. And we need to stop thinking that they're judging us, even if they are, and fight to hear what they're trying to say, which is, I love you, and there's no way I'm going to tolerate that cancer spreading in your body. We would never want that to happen to anyone. The second thing I want us to recognize is the letter's relevance. I mean, we have to realize that the power of the Holy Spirit was moving through this letter when he wrote it hundreds of years ago, and every single week have we not been convicted and seen that this letter speaks to right here and right now. If you have ever doubted the power of God, go back and listen to every single one of the sermons. 
that we've preached week after week. What we have shown you, hopefully, and God has shown you more, is that his word is timeless and it's always powerful. I promise you will open any book of the Bible and it will speak to something going on. Right when it was written, however long ago, and right here and right now in 2019, the Bible is always relevant. And now we come to the close of the letter and we have to ask, now what? Okay, now that we're closing this, now we have this new information, what are we supposed to do with it? And I think we find what we're supposed to do in verses 13 and 14. It's kind of Paul's last little like punch that he gives in this closing chapter. He says in, in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 16 this, be alert, stand firm in the faith, be courageous and be strong. Do everything in love. And the first thing I think we need to see is, is the strength of the language that he's using. He's saying, be alert, it's active, stand firm, there's action in that, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. The Christian life is one that's always in motion. It's never standing still. And so Paul is telling them this because the world around them is going to try to get them to stand still. It's going to try to get them to do other things. To follow Jesus is to live in opposition to the world around you. I think just a verse before this, he said, I have an opportunity in Ephesus and there is great opposition. Anytime you live for Jesus, you are likely to find opposition just as strong as the opportunity. And so he's telling them, look, that is a reality that when you begin to walk in the way of Jesus, there will be forces both physical and spiritual, that will try to stop you. That long after this letter was written, the Corinthians would still have to remember what he said, and he's telling them, you'll do that by being alert, standing firm, with courage and strength, with everything you do, being in love. It's like fighting against a crowd to get to the other side, a massive move. If you've ever gone to like a, a stadium of any kind, probably not you and I, no offense, Panthers, but when there's a <laughs> giant mass of people and the student section isn't free, like Jack Trice, go Cyclones, um, and you try to fight back into the student section to clean the stadium, like it is a, so terrible. It's so hard and ridiculous. And um, a lot of you are looking at me really offended, I think, because of your Panther pride. So let's just move on. Um, <laughs> what I want to do the rest of the night is take each of these words and kind of unpack them for us, right? Like, if you are like, okay, how do I summarize to someone what the book of 1 Corinthians is supposed to get me to do? I think it would be in these verses right here, 13 and 14. You take all of this knowledge that we've gotten from this book, and then you, you fit it into this right here. And the first thing Paul says is that we need to be alert. Another way to say it would be to be on your guard See, the truth is that we live, yes, in the kingdom of God, but it's an already not yet kingdom, like Reed told us. Like, if we're here on earth, we're still in enemy territory. While we live for Jesus, we have to recognize that 1 Peter tells us the, the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion looking to devour us. To follow Jesus is to become an enemy to everything else around you. And so you need to be aware, you need to pay attention, you need to be on your guard because there will always be something that's coming after your faith. We are in enemy territory. We live in a world that does not want you to walk with Jesus, that will daily, often, over and over again, in an overwhelming way, sell you a different narrative, tell you a different story, and offer you a false hope. There are a lot of bad shepherds in this world. There's only one good one, 
and all those other shepherds are trying to tell you different ways that you should follow for hope and all of them will leave you bankrupt. And so we need to stay awake, we need to be alert, and we need to pay attention. And if there's one phrase I say to my four-year-old more than any, it's pay attention, okay? And so sometimes God gives you sermon illustrations even when you don't want them, and I had one of those three days ago, four days ago. So uh, Lisa was still asleep, I got the girls up, the boys were still asleep, because I have so many kids now, holy cow. <laughs> and we're, we're making breakfast, and there was this big pile of dishes, so I thought, I'm going to do those dishes for Lisa, so then I'll have the girls eat in the kitchen with me and not in the dining room, and I started my coffee, and Finley doesn't pay attention very much, and so she decided that she wanted to reach for a bunch of these chocolate eggs that were on the same table that the coffee maker was on, and it's not a super sturdy table. And so Finley reaches up to like go after the eggs, and I just hear this crashing noise as I'm about to pour milk into their cereal. And Finley just goes, ah! And Auden just goes, mess, mess! And I turn as the table is crashing down. Finley jumps out of the way, the coffee maker goes, and it's like, I, I can't even begin to describe to you how coffee grounds spread, but if like, if glitter is like, craft supplies herpes, have you heard that horrible joke? Like there, there's that? Coffee grounds is breakfast herpes, okay? Like, it's everywhere. I didn't think I was going to say that, but just imagine coffee grounds everywhere, okay? It's literally like the coffee maker was like, I don't usually do this. Like a sprinkler, a sprinkler of coffee grounds. You have to understand. And she is screaming, and I'm screaming because I'm not very sanctified. I'm like, what were you doing? You weren't paying attention. It's everywhere. There's graham crackers everywhere, breakfast everywhere, coffee everywhere. And Auden's just going, uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. And I want to be like, yeah, you think? Uh-oh, like, come on. Okay, but the coffee had just started brewing, so not only is there coffee grounds spitting across my kitchen, there's water pouring down, because apparently our house is on a slope, I found out. Um, and so the water's trying to pour into the kitchen, and I'm like, what am I going to do? There's this massive mess, right? It's everywhere, and it took forever to clean up, and then I put all these, like, towels that are filled with coffee grounds in the basement sink and turned it on, and in my rage, I went up to go tell Finley how stupid she was for doing that. And then the girl who lives with us, Hannah, she came up, and she says, hey, Michael, I heard this running water noise, and... I just want to let you know, I turned it off in time. The laundry room's a little bit wet, but I think I stopped it. Thank you, Hannah, my guardian angel, and my terrible parenting. Okay, <laughs> so there's this massive mess. I don't know how to clean it up, and it's because Finley didn't pay attention. And I believe that most of us live our Christian lives following Jesus like Finley. No, I'm serious. I think over and over again, you don't pay attention until all of a sudden you make a mess and you kind of clean it up, but like her, four or five hours later, she would then later be trying to stand on a chair that would go plummeting down to the ground, and by the grace of God, she landed like she planned it. Or later, earlier today, we went around delivering May baskets a day late, and she's like, I want to carry all of them, and she has about 15 of them in a crate, and I said, you need to pay attention. And she goes, I know I will, and kicks the neighbor's front step, and all of it comes crashing out, right? <laughs> And it's really funny when a four-year-old does it, but a lot of you live your lives for Jesus like that. A lot of you guys are just crashing around, falling asleep, falling asleep until it's something you crash into. What happens when the thing you crash into ruins your life? What happens when because you keep falling asleep, you don't wake up again? What happens when you wake up and you've really just been living like a functional atheist most of your life while calling yourself a Christian. We have got to wake up. And I think it's really, really hard to do that in our culture. Because, you know, if we were in a different culture completely where, like, Christianity was illegal, 
I think we would feel the need to be alert way more. Like if we actually knew our lives could be taken from us, I think we might like take this faith more seriously. But I think that's why it's so dangerous to be a Christian in America is because a lot of people will just leave you alone. Or there's a lot of like fake ways to be a Christian and the ways that Satan gets you to fall asleep are far more subtle. They seep in and you don't realize it. I mean, how many days have you gone through uh, from an eight to five or whatever it was and realized, I never once talked to God today because you really didn't need him. How many days have we functionally lived like atheists? How many of us, like Reed taught us, have sin that we accommodate, that we just keep around like a pet and kind of just deal with because it's there? Or we give over uh, to lesser loves or concerns that really aren't God's? And like I said already, there's this dangerous brand of cultural Christianity that puts the Christian title over your head, but your life looks functionally nothing like Jesus would want it to. See, the truth, Salt Company, is you will never accidentally follow Jesus. If you're hoping to just stumble through this life, you will end up hurting yourself and a lot of other people. And so we need to wake up and we need to pay attention. And here's how we do that. The first thing is you need to realize you need community. You will never follow Jesus on your own. In fact, that doesn't exist. If you're a Christian and you say, I don't need community, you don't get it. So we need community. We need a local church. We need people in our lives to tell us, like I have to tell Finley constantly, pay attention, honey. Hey, you're about to step on that. Don't run into your sister at 45 miles an hour. You're going to hurt her, right? That's a common thing. Like even today, they were running and Finley didn't see her. And that noise when two heads hit when they shouldn't, right? So you need someone to like stop that from happening in your life. So you need community. We need community. If you want to stay awake, get around people who want to stay awake with you and are willing to tell you when you're about to run into something. The second thing we need to do is we need to fight for holiness. And here's the thing that I'm nervous about is when I tell you to fight for holiness, you think you need to avoid everything. You need to live this really crisp Christian life with like turtlenecks and long skirts and really nice suits, and that sounds more like Mormonism, and that's not Christianity. But here's what you need to hear from me, okay? A lot of you think, okay, that means Michael wants me to not do a bunch of stuff, and I'm telling you right now, holiness looks like seek first the kingdom of God. If you want to live a holy life, seek first the kingdom of God. Abstinence, yes, from things will come with it, but when you orient your life around seeking first the kingdom, you will watch distractions fall away. You will begin to get rid of the things that make you sleepy. You will learn to pay attention. If you orient your life around following Jesus, about expanding his kingdom wherever you go, you will watch as your life becomes a holy one. I promise. Because what we need is a generation willing to abstain from the idols of the culture around it to be the light and the darkness of the culture. And you see, I think a lot of you, you've distanced yourself from things that your non-Christian peers have just enough, right? My voice just cracked. Dear Lord, (laughs) this is a weird night, isn't it? Jensen, stop laughing. Um, But here's the thing. I think a lot of us, we free ourselves from the idols in our culture just enough to like point them out. But then when you're done pointing them out, they just rope you back in and rope you back in, and rope you back in. And what I think God wants is a people who are willing to get serious about holiness, who are willing to say, I know everybody else does that, but I'm not going to. I know I probably have permission to do that, but I'm just gonna abstain. 
It will help you stay awake. And then as we do that, we will begin to see the second thing we need to do is stand firm. And when he says stand firm in the faith, that's the same thing he says. He's telling us to fight against compromise, right? We live in a culture of relative truth. It's all what you want it to be. And then we accommodate all the time just to help people feel included. And that means it's more important than ever to stand up and stand firm against the waves of the world that want us to change or manipulate the truth that we find in the Bible just to make people feel better. And are we doing anyone favors if the gospel we preach cuts corners or if the life we live doesn't fully demonstrate what God's word says? Are we doing anyone any favors? What you're not offering them is the actual gospel. You're offering them something false. And then they'll arrive someday thinking, well, I followed this my whole life and the whole time it was wrong. So we need to be people who know the truth and don't compromise on the truth. We need to be trees with deep roots. You see, a lot of trees, like the way they can withstand the storm is because although they grow tall, they grow roots just as deep. They grow roots just as deep. And so when the storms come and when the tree is waving, they can still stand. And I think, too, when you think like, oh, stand firm, you think of like sitting on a beach and just letting the waves crash over you and trying to stand. And I want you to realize that's not what he's talking about. When you read stand firm, he means get moving. Like a triathlete who, when he sees the waves coming, he doesn't stand there and takes them. He swims at them. If you want to stand firm in the faith, swim at the things that try to compromise what you're doing. Swim through the things that try to deter you from where you're going and chase into the ocean of what God has for you instead. That's what he's telling us when he tells us to stand firm. How do we do that? The first thing, we need to know the word. We need to stop trusting that on Thursdays and Sundays, someone from the stage will tell us what the Bible says, and we need to start to learn what the Bible says on our own. If we want to stand firm, then we need to know what we're standing on. So we need to know the word. He says, if you love me, you'll obey me. We need to do that. And that's the second thing, obedience. If you want to stand firm in the faith, we need to start doing what it says. If you want to stand firm in your faith, you need to start doing what it says. I heard this uh, chilling quote once. Uh, This pastor said, you can tell how much of the Bible someone actually believes by the life that they live. You can tell how much of the Bible someone actually believes by the life that they live. And so we need to be a people who reads this and obeys all of it so that we can show people that there is a a faith that's firm, there's a truth that's real. But we live in a world that will do all it can to get us to compromise, and it doesn't want absolute truth. It doesn't want the morality of the kingdom, and so we're going to need courage and strength to do this. We're going to need courage and strength. And so he says, be courageous and be strong. And we live in a world that opposes everything about the way of Jesus. So we need these things. And when you see that, be courageous, be strong, it's actually trying to get us to remember how often God said that in the Old Testament. To different groups of people and different tribes of Israel, he constantly said, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. And when I first read that, I thought of Shia LaBeouf and his rat tail. Like, okay, how do I be strong and courageous? Just do it, right? Like he just screams. I can't scream like Reed did last week. That was really good. But I think we begin to, okay, be strong and courageous. Like, I just need to do it, right? Like my career is in shambles, so I'm going to make this weird YouTube video. Just do it, right? Okay, be strong and courageous. Just do it. And that's not what God is talking about at all. To be strong and courageous is to give up any idea that you can do it on your own. 
Because every single time in the Old Testament that God would say, be strong and courageous, his source for those two things was when he would say, because I'm with you. Every time he told his people to be strong and courageous, he always followed it with the phrase, because I'm with you. And we have something even better because God is not just with us, he's in us. And he's not just with us in the battle, he's already won it for us. Do you realize that? Our source of strength and courage comes from the fact that if you have the Holy Spirit, then the odds change whenever you're in the room. We often so live like we need to be afraid and on the defense, but it's the gates of hell because Satan is on the defense and Jesus is on, on offense, okay? Like we need to begin to live that way. Like a people who have strength and courage. There was this time, you guys, where uh, I was in middle school, seventh grade, and this guy called in my class and started saying all sorts of nasty jokes. And this was a time where there's only one phone line in your house. I don't know if you guys know what that is, but you could pick it up anywhere in the home and you could hear what anyone was saying on the phone at the time. And my dad happened to pick up the phone and hear what this guy was saying. And he heard me calling me all these names and accusing me of all these things. My dad came down the stairs and said, where does he live? And my dad drove to this kid's house and this kid was terrified because this dad showed up, right? And out he comes. And you know what my dad said? Or the kid goes, hey, you can't come on my property. You can't come on my property. My dad walked up and he says, you don't own any property. And what you need to realize is every time Satan comes at you, God is behind you saying, you don't own them. You don't own them. They are not your property anymore. God is always with you wherever you go, in you, wherever you walk. When Satan tries to lie, he goes, nope, not your property. Wherever you walk, when you're afraid to do something, God goes, don't worry. This place, not his property, it's mine now. Because you're in the room. He takes insignificant you and he says, you're in the room, you're my property, spread my kingdom, go. You can have courage because I am always with you. Satan doesn't own any property anymore. When he accuses you, remember God's behind you telling him he's wrong. He's wrong. And he doesn't just do that. God gets in his face and he goes, you lost. You will always lose. We need to be a people who have strength and courage, not because of anything in us, but because our God is standing there reminding the enemy, you lose. You don't own any property. I'm on offense. When my son came, you didn't know it, but you were in trouble. And it's trouble from here on out until I get back. That's the story of the kingdom. That's the God we serve. Because he won. He overcame the world. He did all we needed him to do. And we need to live in that. And then he ends with the thing maybe we need to hear more than ever and what he stressed over and over again in this letter. He says, do everything in love. Do everything in love. So don't go posting on your Facebook all of your unnecessary opinions. Don't go crashing into someone's life telling them how messed up they are. Did Jesus ever do that? Yes, to the people who thought they weren't messed up. So you think, okay, what do you mean do everything in love? That's love by God's definition. And you can go back and read 1 Corinthians 13 or you can open every page of the Gospels. Do everything like Jesus. How do you do everything in love? Go do everything like Jesus did. Paul wrote another letter to a church, the Philippians, and he said, look, Jesus considered everyone else better than himself. Although he was God, he emptied himself to the form of a slave so that others could be free. And so he's saying, look, whatever you do, do it that, in a way that makes you a slave so others could be free. Whatever you do, 
Do it like Jesus did. And if you're like me, you probably actually do everything in love of self. Far too often I look at the world around me and I decide, how can you get me what I want or get out of my way so I can have it? And you know what I love about Jesus? He did the opposite. He said, how can I get in your way so that I can fix what's wrong with you? How can I do whatever I can to serve you so that you can see that hope is what you need and it's not what you're chasing after yet? And he says to all of you, do everything in love. Do everything like me. Do everything like me. It's hard. It will require courage and strength. But I'm telling you, that kind of love, it turned the world upside down. What if we woke up every morning and instead of asking, what can I take? We asked, what could I give? What if every morning we woke up and we said, God, where does your kingdom want to go today? Send me there. How do you want to use me? Whatever you want. Guys, don't close the book of 1 Corinthians tonight and never live out what you've learned from it again. Wake up if you've fallen asleep. Stand firm, but don't just sit there. Move into the waves that are trying to call you to compromise. Live out his word. Be strong and courageous because Satan doesn't own any property. And do everything in love. What would happen if we did this? It would turn the world upside down. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you. And we just want to be still. I, I first just want to say, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit, speak to us. Everything we've ever done has hopefully never ultimately been uh, for our gain or Salt Company's praise or any glory for this church, but all for you, Jesus. I believe that when you came preaching the good news, you weren't telling us, this is a thing I'm going to do, but you were saying, this is a kingdom I've brought to earth. And the kingdom was actually the truest way to be human. And there's people in this room tonight who aren't living the truest way to be human. And I think you want to free them. And I think there are people in this room tonight who keep living like they're the world's or Satan's property. And I think you want them to know that you're in Satan's face right now, reminding them he doesn't own any property. And more than anything, personally, Jesus, I am convicted by your command, your desire for us to do everything in love. I want to be like you. Oh, I want to be like you. It's the goal of every bit of my life. I want to look like you more every day. And my prayer for, for right now in this room is that if they're coming back in August, they would look more like you in August, not less like you. And my prayer is, if they're never coming back to this room, that when I see them in eternity, they would tell me their last day was the day they looked most like Jesus until they saw him face to face. This is not our peak. This is not the pinnacle. But right now, God, we want to see into heaven. God, would you give us a glimpse of heaven as we sing? Would you show us what it would be like to be in the city of Zion crying out to the God who made us and saved us?